0: morning, everybody. A very big welcome to all of you to um, this network seminar. I'm really pleased to see all of you here, and especially our speakers. Uh, may I introduce you, for those who don't know, Linda Evans, our convener of the IR network. For those of you Who's his first time to one of our networks? Can I have a look? Just a oh, wow. a no, quite a bit of right? you all got to sign up this morning as you leave, please. Yes. You won't be allowed to lock the doors you won't be until you yeah. join up. There are loads of benefits you'll see. Um, well, welcome to those who are here for the first time. We run a number of networks, ten of which this is one. Um, uh, Linda here is convenient. She's always happy to hear from you please, please feel free to talk to her during the course of the day If you've got any ideas you want to develop I mean we're here for you and for our members um, And Linda has set up this fascinating program for us And I want to uh, particularly um, welcome Maggie Archer Maggie will tell you why she prefers being called Maggie rather than Margaret That's just another story And uh um, Maggie's come a long way, not only in terms of getting <laughs> here today but her intellectual travels have been fascinating I've just been looking at her, her CV, uh, you've been all over the place let alone the 68 events in Paris, which is oh, yeah. fascinating <laughs> that's yeah. something else we need to know about um, And also to that's, another that's another day That's another day, that's another day And to welcome Ahmed, uh, who will be speaking this afternoon after lunch and also Dr Carol O'Byrne, welcome to you all um, you've got your delegates packs, all sorts of information in here. One of the key things that's not in there is our annual conference this year, which is the 11th, 12th and 13th, I got the date's right, of I December. Heard, yeah. December. Call for papers will be going out shortly. Helen's written I have Helen's written it. We're jumping in a lot of pressure on to be able to get that out. And uh, the, the um, call for better period ends on the 29th of June. So those are your key dates. Those of you who want to come to the conference to see on papers, you can start thinking about it now. Um, and finally, <coughs> um, we'd love to hear what you think about us and our events. We've got an evaluation form in here, which I'll remind you later on, please, to fill in at the end of the day and to hand them to me on your way out. Um, and all this is for me to is to um, hand you over to Linda and I uh, hope you have an enjoyable day Thanks
1: Thank you Francois Well from me welcome to everybody and I'm, I'm absolutely delighted that we have so many new members um, joining us for this seminar of the International Research and Researchers Network and looking at the delegates list we have people from uh, countries overseas, have we got Maria here from Spain, Maria from Spain, Has she materialise? No? Yes, we one we'll never knows uh, I know we've got oily Helena from Finland from the University of Uvascular which is often represented here either by Yanni your colleague or, or by you yourself on this occasion um, we've also of course got um, someone who comes from uh, Kuwait have we got Olivia here Olivier nice to see you Olivia Um University of Leeds as well is represented. <laughs> 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 it can't be um, This is an event under the aegis you of know, the International Research and Researchers Network. And the key terms are research and researchers. Uh, so it can either be UK-based people who are doing research in overseas contexts, or it can actually be overseas-based Researchers and academics who are doing research into higher education within their own context or within any national context at all, and we have a combination of that today. What I particularly like about this event is that we have a whole spectrum that, that we, we, we represent <coughs> the spectrum of uh, academia and, and of researchers, because of course we're having our keynote uh, presentation in a few moments by an extremely distinguished social theorist. Uh, and then after lunch we'll be hearing from two early career academics, early career researchers who have been using uh, Margaret, sorry Maggie's work uh, in their own, um, in both cases actually it was their doctoral research. Um, so we also have a good gender balance as well, we have one man and two women which is how it should be of course with the women, I would bring the men. Um, and I'm absolutely delighted that Maggie has finally agreed to come. I've been trying to get her, she's, it's not that she's been reluctant to come at all, it's been trying to, to, to coordinate one's diaries. I've she's been trying been doing, for isn't it? two <laughs> years to get her to come, and I think I just minded her so much that in the end she, she had to agree, but I'm absolutely delighted. Um, just a little bit about Margaret for those of you who don't know, I'm sure most of you know this anyway. So when she'd finished dealing with the riots in May 1968 uh, in, in France, um, she's had a very illustrious career. She took her first degree uh, at LSE here, and she did a postdoc at the École pratique des hautes études in Paris, uh, sorry, Paris, um, and was also working in uh, Pierre Bourdieu's Laboratoire. Okay. Uh, and she's now professor in social theory at the École politique fédérale de Lausanne in Switzerland, and she's the directrice of its Centre d'Ontologie Sociale, She was Professor of Sociology at the University of Warwick from 1979 until 2010, and indeed is still affiliated to the University of Warwick, she was telling me this morning. She's written over 20 books, including The Reflexive Imperative in Late Modernity, Making Our Way Through the World, Human Reflexivity and Social Mobility, one that most of you will be familiar with, Structure, Agency and the Internal Conversation, quite a recent one. And Being Human, The Problem of Agency, as well as Social Origins of Educational Systems. So she has actually got a great interest in education.
2: Reprinted Um, last night. Yes.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Did you manage to bring any flyers? No, no,
2: they didn't have any.
1: Do rush out and order a copy of that reprint if you haven't got the original. And even if you have got the original, you ought to get the reprint. (laughs) Get it on Amazon, it might be the cheapest. Um, she was president of the International Sociological Association <coughs> in the late 1980s and early 90s, and she's founder member of the Pontifical Academy of Social Sciences, which she took up at that post in 1994 and still holds it, I believe. Mm-hmm. Uh, and is a trustee in the centre of the Centre for Critical Realism. Um, she is going to speak today for approximately 55 minutes or so. Followed by questions. And her title is How Does Structure Influence Agency? You have in your packs um, an expanded abstract, which we weren't able to put on the flyer for, for problems of word length, but you have that in your packs. So it's over to you, Margaret. I'm, I'm delighted to welcome Margaret Archer. Please join me, colleagues, in welcoming her.
2: Well, I think I should start by thanking Linda for inviting me, uh, and for some of you getting up at dawn um, and finding Collier Road. Congratulations! <laughs> <laughs> uh, if you want to have that joke de- decoded, um, why do I prefer Maggie? Uh, there's a platform in Stockholm for something or other. I can't remember. Neil Smells was chairing so it's just the projector light um, and he said folks, I'm delighted to welcome Margaret Thatcher." <laughs> <laughs> I thought I was pretty good on my feet because I said I fancy seeing Ronald Reagan here <laughs> <laughs> so uh, yeah, I'm happier with Maggie um, now what I thought was um since we all have uh, quite a variety of backgrounds, and even when we have the same one, it was acquired in different countries, you can't really assume that we're starting from the same knowledge base. So, I'm going to try not to be overcomplicated or use loads of terminology, but if at any point, because I do like, anybody who's read me knows this, I do like an argument that is coherent. So if at any point I say anything, and it can just be the choice of words you don't recognize, uh, points of clarification, just stop, just stop me. Just put your hand up and say, you know, say it some other way. Mm. Um, just the points to communicate. Uh, I had six hours in IOE yesterday, so, you know, I've, I've done my ego trip. Um, <laughs> I don't need it today. Uh, so well we're going to talk about how, that's the most important word in this title how does social structure influence human agency now to start off at (coughs) absolute rock bottom level (coughs) what's the central difference can you all hear at the back Mm -hmm. I can't produce much more volume Uh, tell me if it drops um what's the basic difference between anything that we call part of structure or part of culture compared with agency? Agents, actors, I'm not going to be too choosy about these concepts today, have self-consciousness. No structure, no culture is self-conscious. So if you take every kind of social theory even the social constructionists who will talk about let's say the objectification of gender and I'm perfectly happy to see gender as regarded as a social construct but that problem of the difference doesn't go away a person, an actor whatever their gender can look at what's objectified in in their country, their area uh, and object or applaud usually object uh, but the thing that's objectified, the notion of gender wherever we're talking about it can't be self reflexive it doesn't have the consciousness to ask oh could I present this idea more convincingly? Only people can do that. And then an objectification of gender becomes part of culture, part of the cultural system that we can take different attitudes towards. Uh, And that is absolutely basic, because I think if one loses that connection, or more frequently blurs that distinction, which many, many people do, but I'm not here to sort of knock other sociologists. Um, They lose a lot of explanatory power. Um, And what I want to talk about is the explanatory power of keeping these two things distinct, structure and agency, precisely in order to be able to look at their interplay and to see how they're intertwined. Now, as far as I know, there are only two schools hardly exist any longer uh, of social theorising, but historically they, they were important, that didn't make any distinction at all between structure and agents on the one hand complete determinists Uh, historical determinists technological determinists economic determinists didn't matter because it's like those old cartoons we used to look at as kids you know the steamroller comes along and there's the dog Uh, the steamroller goes over the dog and somebody lifts up (laughs) the two dimensional dog that's left uh... In other words, it doesn't matter what the dog's like, it's just something that the steamroller goes over. And then on the other hand, we used to have the historical idealists who thought there was nothing but the interplay of ideas and used to write huge tones about you know, the idea of progress and uh, the idea of anything you like without really any significant agents in it. So... That's, as it were, the starting point. Now, if we want to look at the interplay between um, these things, oh, I've got a wonderful gadget here. No, uh, it yeah. won't be. Um, again, always this how question. How does structure, and by structure, I could give exactly the same talk about culture. Um, if we give an account of how this influence is actually exerted. How does a structural influence, uh, and by structure, you'll gather as I go along what this means, but usually as far as something like higher education is concerned, one's talking about the relationship between the roles within higher education, the powers of the people occupy those roles uh, the discrepancies in power between those who are uh, organisational appointees in other words professors, lecturers so on uh, and students who themselves have a hierarchy from postdocs to uh, first years um, how does this organisational structure actually affect those people who are in it and also those people who are coming into it. So one good example to keep in mind while I'm yapping is the idea of the open day. Who comes? Because not everybody who's qualified or invited turns up. Do they come alone or do their parents now come with them because the structure's changed and it costs 9,000 pounds and the parents want to know whether it will be well spent and so on and so forth Um, so keep that in mind because if you like this is the prelude it's what we used to call courting in English Uh, these are the prenuptials Uh, do these folk who come to an open day, they probably go to more than one they are being wooed there's no doubt about that, we sell universities, it's another commodity Um, what is it that's going through their heads that makes them ask the questions they do, now some of these are quite common, you know, what's the accommodation like, everybody wants to know their kids will be kind of decently housed or housed at all Um, what's going through their heads and then when they leave something new is going to go through their heads how has this place presented itself to us parents who let's say well they do care for their kids they've turned up they're willing to pay seven to nine thousand pounds a year what's going through their heads that makes them decide between X and Y universities that they've seen we don't know the answer to that question and it would be a nice research project because my guess would be not the same things are going through every head some things that appeal to, to some parents um, don't appeal to others uh, and then you've got interaction between agents Maybe we could just stereotype, say, two families who've been to an open day who go home, uh, and let's say, in family A, they're all on the same wavelength, and oh, you know, that was great, and did you notice the swimming pool and lots of activities in the students' union, etc., 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 and the specimen lecture was good, um, and then you can have the opposite of that but really family B is the interesting one where you'll have not only thoughts, what I call (coughs) internal conversation but you'll also have external conversation in which maybe the kids and the parents are completely at odds with one another about which university they were drawn to completely different reasons and how those scenarios play out, well we would just have to study them, you can't generalize for the population so as realists (coughs) um, I don't have time to justify being a a realist um, we do think structures influence agents they never determine them but when we say that a structure has temporal priority we mean nothing more pretentious than that university that they visited pre-existed the parents and children um, parents and pupils who who went when we say it has relative autonomy we mean that university has properties and powers of its own Uh, for example it lays down the curriculum on an open day Parents can go there and ask to see what the curriculum is year one, year two, year three, um, and they can see how much choice is built into it. But it's no use those parents standing there saying things like, Oh dear, they're not doing urban sociology. It ain't there. Um, if it ain't there, it ain't there. At that point in time, that doesn't mean they can't, you know, form a pressure group saying you know we want urban sociology on the syllabus maybe if there are enough of them and they act strategically they'll get it on the syllabus Uh, but at T1 the initial starting point as all T1 means what's on the syllabus (coughs) is relatively autonomous from the people who are busy signing in to take that degree and causal efficacy just means that doing things like taking degrees has effects upon people. we hope beneficial ones, but maybe not. some cases it isn't. So that's the the basic of um, you know the realist um, stance towards structure and agents. But how? Does it exert this kind of influence? Well, Roy Baskar is the sort of philo- philosopher of realism. And he wrote in 1979 um, that the causal <coughs> power of social forms, the social forms you put in university, uh, is mediated through social agency. Now that's fine, if it's not mediated through people, then it becomes what I call a hydraulic force, meaning it just exerts a pressure, a force, regardless of who it's exerting it on. So it's assumed it works in the same fashion for all those people there at the open day. And the trouble is, that it tells us nothing about this mediating process, what's involved, until we've unpacked what this keyword through means and involves. Right? Um, because through can be done in all sorts of different ways. Uh, now, it's very important that he does talk about mediation, because otherwise do you know the term reification well that's often thrown at realists and anybody who talks about um, causal powers of structures or cultures but they are reifying these things we don't think we are at all because we think we can specify how mediation takes place um, for example one critic who some of you may have heard of it doesn't matter if you haven't Peter Manicus American philosopher um, well he said if you need a mediating device well then you're not talking about a structural influence at all because it's the influence of the people through social agency uh, which always struck me as a kind of extraordinary argument because most things are mediated through something um, you know, the electricity that comes into your house uh, it, it doesn't just come into your house because you put the switch on it needs a huge infrastructure going back to the national grid and um, hydroelectric dams and so on otherwise no light so most things are mediated and most social things are mediated Um, well language would be one of the prime contenders uh, and so on and so forth so just to say through isn't good enough, though I'm very glad he used the word mediated but we need to unpack through and I'm not getting at Roy because in the the beginning I made the same mistake uh, thinking that if you just talked about conditioning you got yourself off the hook of determinism so an outcome change in syllabus, introduction of uh, ref and all that um, is said to condition the educational experience that, that you would have in British universities and other universities that have got parallel devices but there's a problem with that it's not gone far enough uh, what we need is to unpack conditioning still further uh, and it, it's an interesting word. Um, sorry, this is girly talk, uh, but if you go into a super drug and buy a hair conditioner, you'll look, uh, does it need rinsing out or can you leave it in? And you'll look at its chemical components, you know, tiny bit of chemistry. There's some things you definitely don't want in it. Um, Now, with conditioning of a structural or cultural kind, uh, there are two things that are involved, two sets of properties or powers. And if you're not comfortable quite yet with with properties and powers, um, don't worry, we'll come to them. So there are two aspects of conditioning. The first one is how does a structure get in on your personal human space. Well, in the example that i picked, because it just runs through this talk, um, actually, in a university open day, the agents travel <laughs> to the structural site, and that's how it impinges on it. But that's not always the case. In situations involving power, war, oppression... Uh, discrimination, Uh, it's certainly not that the agent volunteers to put itself under that influence, or even go and have a look at it. We'll come on to that. But that's just part one. How does culture get in on a human person's act? But I'll give you examples in a second. The other aspect of it is once it has impinged upon people how do agents themselves use their own personal powers to respond to that structure that they have now met and confronted now my main argument today is going to be that it doesn't do to give a good explanation just to specify point one Because if you just do point one, you necessarily neglect point two, and it's the combination that is the important thing in deciding, um, possibly right down at the micro level for for each potential student going to an open day, um, what the outcome is. Or it may be at a meso level or a macro (coughs) level, but we can't do everything in 50 minutes. Now, um, <laughs> realism in, in Britain, as many of you will know, calls itself critical realism, and that I've always taken as a license to be a bit critical about realism itself, <laughs> um, because it's better at doing, sorry, point one, specifying how structure gets in on our. Personal spaces, our localities, our local government, our national government, and our global uh, effects. Then it is about doing uh, how agents use their own personal cars. So the last three, the first three books that, that Linda reeled off uh, is a trilogy about reflexivity, and it's about people's use of their personal powers to evaluate decide plan etc etc um, now my critical bit about realism is it been better at one than two so there's my own example of how structural and cultural factors shape the social context for agents now this is very very important because <coughs> when The main things about realism in particular and any kind of social theorising in general is that there is no contextless free action. We are sitting here, but my goodness, we are in a structural context. One whose relational organisation has taken a lot of effort to produce just this group of people all of us here in this room at this particular time <coughs> it's not just happenstance you know somebody wasn't holding up a thing and reading free drinks outside and folks came in off the street um, now some people like to sort of uh, not be too hard about this as you can see I'm being pretty hard here they account for structural factors and cultural factors account for what's there to be distributed more national wealth in Europe than there is in Africa and there are good structural and historical reasons for why that's the case um, the shape of the existing roller array and what's attached to it, I mean as you well know the position of, of, of head of, of a school head teacher as we used to, to call them um, has changed enormously over the last 30 years out of recognition so just to say head or head teacher there's a kind of nominalism creeps in here it's the same name so it's referring to the same thing it's not Uh, any more than the term lecturer or professor um, relates to the same job description as it did 30 years ago. It has no relationship to it. I'm really sorry for those entering the profession right now and all the things that they have to do because we didn't have to do them, did we? Uh, So that's what I mean by... um, structural and cultural factors shape the, the context <coughs> there is no context less action and I don't think it helps theoretically to talk about situated action yeah of course action is situated but what, what creates the situation um, it's back to this question why are we as a particular I hate using the term individuals, singular subjects, which is a mouthful. Why are we here? Um, and it's not just that we're situated here. But we, we are actually part of a process that's ongoing, partly designed, as you heard, there are nine, nine streams, once more? Ten. Ten. Uh, and Linda has a program. Courtesy of her position, she can execute this programme. Um, That makes this, as part of her programme, more than just a situation. A situation is something like a traffic jam that you just happen to find yourself in. It's not something like sitting in this room, which is part of Linda's agenda, um, the research foundation uh, charities agenda and your personal agendas Uh, and all of that is important but the key thing is that what I'm saying here is that we've been good or not so bad at any rate at capturing how structure I'm being it's always parallel by culture but you can't do everything we'd be pretty good about how it impinges on people. We'd be much less good at how people react back uh, when faced with these organizational structures that they find themselves in. Now, if I'd had the time, <laughs> I would have done a, imported from Google a, you know, a picture of an open day. Uh, but it's exactly the same message. So here we've got two, two people who are meant to be kind of archetypical pensioners, not there really is such a thing. And they're living on fixed incomes. And we're going to pretend that their pensions are not index-linked. So that means, firstly, um, that they are under objective constraints. They have so much a week to live on now they may completely misunderstand why that figure (coughs) that they have to live on is as it was Uh, there's a nice anecdote from from Britain Uh, when when we went decimalised we were also in a period of inflation and food did cost more and some people for quite a time said it's the decimalisation that led the prices to rise do you remember that okay, anyway yeah. so people epistemologically can have a completely wrong understanding about the ontology of the case about what's really going on and that goes for most of us most of the time it's not being, um putting pensioners down at all and in fact A lot of the time, it may be that we don't understand most of the things that go on, if only because there is power and a lot of things are kept from us, if only because there is ideology uh, and a lot of what we have available for us to read um, is manipulation. Uh, But sometimes, um, many times, there are cases where things happen to us. Uh, We don't have what Gibbons once called full discursive penetration of the situation. So take this scenario. Uh, We've got a big conference, international conference, coming up. And we've got lots of um, people who've finished their PhDs uh, who've had papers accepted. Um, and they are all understandably nervous about making their first public presentation uh, and one of them let's call her she. Uh, one of them is British mother tongue, born and bred, school uh, and the conference, surprise surprise is held in English as the official language now she's as nervous as anybody else but it's her mother tongue and surprise, surprise she, despite her nerves is a rather fluent performance and um, sits down apart from relief she thinks I didn't do too badly compared with I'm not going to name other countries because be there, there will be many there they will be twice as nervous and the chances are and I don't go in for positivism or empiricism in in the least but all the same on an everyday basis the chances are not in every case that they will be less fluent less easily understood because their English will be accented Okay, Um, I'm not trying to put down other languages i I live in my second language and I work in it, so uh, I'm sure it's faulty in many respects. But this first girl, she, she doesn't really understand why she's had such a positive experience. Now, you can say she's thick, and I would agree, but she doesn't say to herself, um, you know, half of my doing well is, is due to post colonialism. she's thick Uh, but what she does know despite her misunderstanding and despite the fact that she's getting an objective enablement rather than a constraint is that her experience at that conference was smooth, easy and the key thing put the word structurally in brackets it was encouraging to her to go on and do other conferences I can hack it maybe she says to herself as an academic career but she she doesn't really understand what the enablement where the enablement came from I think we're all in dozens of these situations I picked a simple one because we just can't master um, you know tons of information that are available to us Every single day, but if you look at some of the research that was um, has been done on, on pensioners, so I have no expertise in the area, but you can read two or three articles. Um, you get uh, people making assertions like, "Well, of course they'll have to." These two assume they're married or enjoying their adultery. Uh (laughs) these two will have to eat less well and heat less well or they'll have to do in (coughs) rational choice theory a trade-off between eating and heating and if people put it in ordinary language they'll say they have to cut back on luxuries you know, okay, okay we've got the picture what they're really saying is, is tautological this pair are worse off with inflation than they were before it. They can buy less. But what do they actually do? And this depends upon their subjectivity. Take those who give given the interpretation. They give up their luxuries. The phone is expensive. Have the landline removed. Uh, Well, if they have kids who live abroad or well away from them talking to their kids may be so important to them it's not a luxury it's a kind of lifeline mm-hmm. without a relationship to my children I wouldn't feel um, you know, the person I am um, <clears throat> and you know all sorts of examples like that I'll give you one from my, my own mother um. and <laughs> one of those um, feisty northern ladies uh, who you'd think was sort of um, you know quick eye for a bargain I visited her one day and she said oh nice jacket I said thanks Oxfam said, what? <laughs> it
3: was,
2: yeah Oxfam four pounds <laughs> you went in a charity shop said, yeah why don't you Uh I wouldn't be seen dead in a charity shop, subjectively. Okay, if you want to pay, you know, Jaeger prices, you go into Jaeger and they'll let you. Um, so, you know, that's just saying, what everybody knows, people are different. And they have different priorities, different concerns, different concepts of what is shaming and what is acceptable. And they just are different. You know, to be snobby about charity shops can be matched by the neighbour who says, oh, i got another great bargain (coughs) in Acorn today or wherever. Uh, So, we need to do some more work on what people bring to the situation, the context um, that they are stuck with. Um ah, I've got a bit ahead. Um or I've got them mixed up. Yep, I've got them mixed up. Um oh, that happened. Excuse me one second. I won't know where I'm going. That's alright. Um now what's happened in a lot of social theorizing is the following. Try keep that in mind, or s- switch mentally to your open-day picture, and we get the two-stage model that tries to account for what people do in these sorts of situations. So stage one, there's nothing wrong with that. Structural, cultural properties objectively shape the situations that agents find themselves in like the pensioners, they didn't volunteer for it, they found themselves in it, and they exercised constraints and enablements. Now, in relationship to what? And this is where third-person accounts trump uh, are more important than uh, first-person accounts. So... What happens is the investigator, the theorist, imputes subjective motivation to the agents or actors. They impute what it is that is assumed to govern their actions. Now this can take all sorts of forms. I've given you just three examples there. Uh, People's subjective properties, really are all about promotion of their vested interests that's the neo-Marxist version they never work because they're not true for each and every subject Uh, some of you are old enough to remember uh, Tony Benn Mm -hmm. Uh, Tony Benn undoubtedly had a vested interest He, he got an inherited title and a seat in the House of Lords but instead of promoting his vested interests, Tony Benn gave up his um, title and <coughs> sat in the Commons so that he could play a part in mm-hmm. Labour Party politics. So not each and everybody who has vested interests are out there maintaining them. I would hope um, that when you know we do things like organising seminars and, and conferences, that we are sensitive. To things like national linguistic differences and that we don't bury our heads and talk English quickly um, and with bad diction, because that's simply unfair but that too involves reflexivity, you talk at different speeds depending upon the composition of your audience and that's right and um, and that's one way, third-person way everybody's subjective subjectivity is directed at preserving whatever ever they've got whether it's a shop steward's position or a house um, you know provided by a local council um, but one they like that's a vested interest too, we don't want to be moved out of London and rehouse somewhere where we can't get a job either uh, but we like London, we don't don't even know this place Um, then we've got another version of it Um, there there are dozens of versions of it because nearly all accounts of subjectivity are given in the third person by the investigator so rational choice theory assumes that we are all uh, out there trying to maximise or at least satisfy our preference schedule uh, that we act by instrumental rationality with the one aim in view of becoming better off in terms of not necessarily money the rational choice theorists use the term utils in terms of whatever currency we value now that's an interesting point because first of all you've got to find out what currency they do value <coughs> and then finally you've got the most famous of all Sorry about this, because many of you will be uh, Bourdieu's supporters. Um, But, you know, habitus uh, is a subjective property, um, which in the early days he used to say was um, induced by socialization. And then even when he got to producing um, with his team, what I regard as... um, one of his more interest, most interesting books um, oh, how, what, La Misère du Monde anybody, anybody know what it's called in English? of the World that's a nice translation <laughs> yeah, lovely well uh, so <coughs> quite a few of you know this book it's very very rich in people's biographical uh, data, a woman came from Morocco, her husband followed and we live in you know this apartment, and we have this 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 and that difficulty and, and grievance. It's full of ref- people reflecting upon their mig- their choices about migrating, uh, their prospects about flourishing in middle of Paris, uh, or the um, um, suburbs, um, and. These things tend to be completely ignored. Uh, the first person accounts, the presenter, but then the forgotten <laughs> the discussion of it. But I, I'm not <coughs> really into knocking. I, I'm just talking about bad practice and how much rich data there was there that got lost. Now, why am I calling it bad practice? Because it deprives the agent of his, her, personal powers Uh, it's not bad at describing how social properties and powers get in on somebody's act but it's absolutely hopeless about how they're received by them and what I've argued in the reflexivity trilogy is that People's subjective reception of anything from university to ice cream is in the light of their personal concerns. The personal concern just means what matters to you. And I've interviewed long, long in-depth interviews, over 300 people. I can guarantee that in this room, I can't give you empirical percentages. Uh, But you won't all have the same concerns. Um, An awful lot will depend on biography, an awful lot will depend on you. Um, Now, can you guess, as third person, that's what social theory is based on, can you guess whether I like or dislike ice cream? You can't. You can't get into my head. I'm not saying ice cream matters to me. It matters enough that I dislike it enough to avoid it. Um, That's not an important one. I'm just making the the point that we have differences. They don't show. And in a way, we've only got a tin opener to one head, our own. So I know instantly in the first person, Maggie dislikes ice cream. Couldn't say what your concerns are. What was very interesting during the research is that subjects themselves can be extremely vocal about this, including bracketing two concerns. Uh, for example, my last book, um, The Reflexive Imperative, is interviewing student subjects longitudinally as they go through their three years of higher education and not only do their concerns change over the three years as they learn more for example uh, a young woman uh... very sparky who came up to university already incredibly active in Greenpeace uh... and said to me in her first interview you know, that's what I care about most uh... I so tried to say very new, tree, um, what do you plan to do? You know, after after uni, she said, "Well, that's my problem." You know, you can't have a career in Greenpeace. <coughs> and amazingly, one um, well, good thing about work, uh, it it did have at one time um, a rather receptive uh, career service. And um, next thing we knew, um, give her. I can't give you a name for confidentiality, give her the credit for it. There was a poster up all over the place reading, So You Want to Work for an NGO. And this girl actually got an internship with Greenpeace in Washington and, and then in Ecuador. So by year three, her concern had not changed in the sense that, you know, total change it was a good deal more precise because she knew she could follow that concern not as something she did outside her work activities but central to her work activities um, so we need to know about what matters to people to explain what people do like this girl jumping at an internship uh, which was really very, very poorly paid it was a subsistence wage she was just so glad to be doing it because if we don't know what people want (coughs) then we settle for what we think most people most of the time do and that really doesn't help us much so we need reflexive (coughs) mediation are you telling me I've got uh, oh that's fine Um we think we think about ourselves. Now reflexivity and thought are very, very close together. But um you'll see under point two, I give you my definition of reflexivity uh which is universal. By normal people I just mean those who haven't been in an accident or had the misfortune to be brain damage, so it is just a layperson's use of normal. So all people have this mental ability to think about themselves in relation to their social contexts and vice versa. And reflexivities, that's how reasons become causes for courses of action. Now I don't know whether you know it, but there's a huge philosophical literature about can reasons be causes, but I don't think we need to delay over that here. Um, So, forget about the last point. Uh, Reflexivity is practiced through our internal conversations. Now, that's not to say that all of the time, mentally, we go around in some sort of angst about what shall I do next uh, what shall I do with my life we can have trivial thoughts we can have bitchy thoughts um, we can have kind thoughts that we may not realise <coughs> uh, but some of our internal conversation is responsible for defining our concerns that matter to us and there's nothing noble about a concern it can be <coughs> ignoble, illegal. Uh, if you ask some of the Warwick students, um, as I did, why do you like the campus? And some of them were honest enough to say, dead easy to get any drug you want here. Mm-hmm. So, a concern, you know, for, forget about it being noble, it's just something that matters to a person. Um, and if something really matters to you, it seems nonsensical to say it makes no difference uh, to what I do. Um, what it affects are our projects. Uh, some students, for example, uh, let's pick a mail for a change. <coughs> One guy was passionate about cars, the kind of passionate that makes him spend more time under the bonnet than behind the wheel. Uh, and he was well, he'd redefined the role of student he'd become the guy (coughs) guy on your phone or email when you can't get your own car going he'd redefined his his role vis-a-vis garages he's the guy who knows so much you don't rip him off Uh, and all of that and he was busy reflecting about how could he bring together sociology (coughs) and (coughs) car engines and I I don't know how he solved that problem because you know with regular interviews over three years he still hadn't solved it because what a solution consists in and what this kind of internal conversation is about is defining my good life one head one set of thoughts uh my concerns, what projects can I think of fallibly, because I don't know everything, I never will know everything, I'll miss some opportunities, I'll mistake some opportunities, as thinking they will fulfill my concerns, uh, and find they do just the opposite. But the ultimate aim is to establish a way of life, a modus vivendi, establish practices, which mean, and this is a distinction between the agent and and the actor, the actor assumes a role. You know what practice you want, if you are skillful and lucky enough to get... Suppose you want to be a lecturer. You want a job in a university. Um, Then... uh, That's the job you go for. The the lot comes in... um, You know, do do you get shortlisted (laughs) these days? Um, But your aim in actually making an application is... I want a way of life that includes me being a lecturer. And that may or may not succeed. The interesting thing about subjects is they are active agents... If they can't have what they want, they don't just go away quietly and go and work for Tesco or Poundland or whatever. Um, wonderful woman in making our way through the world, had a very patriarchal father, and when she said when she was young, um, this is German in the book, which of course is not her real name. Um, Her father sort of thought it was a servile job being a nurse. He thought it was all about cleaning bottoms and emptying bedpans, Um, and he wouldn't let her do it. And she was at home, and he was, she didn't actually say he was aggressive, but he was verbally abusive. Um, But she didn't quietly crawl away. She designed her own project, often we have to go around this many times, she became a nursing auxiliary <coughs> okay half a loaf not not the full loaf that, that she'd wanted but working in the environment doing the kinds of things caring for, for patients um, that she'd wanted to do so the internal conversation mediates between our structurally shaped circumstances including things <coughs> like having an abusive, verbally abusive, patriarchal father and what we deliberately, deliberatively make of them. And that's necessary in order for a constraint to be a constraint and an enablement to be an enablement. Because to constrain you have to have something to constrain. To enable you have to have something to enable. And these are our projects. They may be our fledgling early projects, but they're still our projects. And we can't make of our circumstances just what we please. If we did that, probably what realists call committing the epistemic fallacy, in other words, taking how we think the world is for how the world really is. Uh, And finally, get things Wrong, misinterpret your circumstances, and the subject pays the price, whether they comprehend or not. so think of all those people who are you know ripped off by the um Fanny and Freddie and the other home loan um, um, what you call them well not- prop- uh, mortgage brokers um uh, young couple, yeah, we desperately want our home, yeah, of course we can sign up to pay more than 100% of what we, we earn for the mortgage well, unless, you know daddy is sitting on an oil one well or mama on top of a something equally lucrative um, get those circumstances <coughs> wrong miscalculate what you really can pay and the subject pays the price, foreclosure of your mortgage, repossession of your house, and a bad reputation if you go for a more modestly priced house because you've defaulted on one mortgage already and these things are cumulative. So, this is what I'm going to end on. <coughs> we need, I'm saying, you can, you can differ on <coughs> question, the three-stage model which begins point one in exactly the same way. There's nothing wrong with point one. Our situations are objectively shaped for us, and they exercise constraints and enablements in relation to... And this is where (coughs) it differs from everything that's gone before, and particularly from the two-stage model. In relation to subjects' own set of concerns as subjectively defined by them so just because there's a situation uh, you can't assume it has a blanket effect on everybody in that context mm-hmm. to go back to education and subjects concerns if a kid for a variety of reasons we know quite a lot about has no interest in in schooling. Uh, subjectively, it's not one of their concerns to do well. It's much more important to do well at the junior trial for the local football team. Uh, they're not going to be distressed, downhearted, downcast <coughs> if they get bad school reports, exam results, etc., etc. Uh, so... Concerns are the sort of pivotal personal property that that enter into this way in which action is, is constructed by the subject. So finally, courses of action are produced by the reflexive deliberation of agents who subjectively determine their projects in relation to their objective circumstances. Now that sounds a mouthful, but I bet many of you have either been through it yourselves or you've been through it with, um, say for example, people who have done very well with their first degree, you're the tutor. You're trying to encourage them to go on and do an MA or a PhD or whatever. Um, and what's going through the heads of these these students? Uh, if they've done well, they've got a lot of positive feedback, a lot of encouragement. They want to go on, but they're deliberating subjectively about whether they really can. In all fairness that affects a lot of, lot of subjects can they enroll for a masters and some of them will put it very categorically I cannot take another penny from my parents and I respect them for that attitude particularly when you know it's really pinching the parents to, to do it uh, on the other hand subject, subjectivity does a lot of work and it appears in, it gets externalised, in external conversation, so it may end up in student having a discussion with Linda, and Linda says to them, well, don't just abandon ship, because you don't want to take a penny from your parents, what about doing a part-time MA, OK? It takes two years, not one year, but you could work part-time, and, you know, if you really care, you'd see yourself through and it will be then down to the subject because I've had this conversation with innumerable potential PhD students and some go and do just that I'll be seeing one tomorrow he's now in his fifth year of his PhD and the finishing post is in sight but he didn't abandon it he did work of work and he maintained himself through it So, the key thing, and this is where we end, is that I'm introducing subjectivity var reflexivity in order to explain what we do. And this allows for the fact that both individually and collectively we seek different ends. In other words, agents are not just subjects with a capital S, in other words, passive plasticine. They're radically different, they have very different concerns, courses of actions, and goals, uh, which they may modify in the light of what life does to them. Um, in other words, this is very important that they can modify and change because many people attempt to, when they I touched them about reflexivity, to try psychological reductionism. And one of the main arguments against psychological reductionism is that you can point to these changes of circumstance leading to modifications (coughs) of projects and even in some cases abandonments of concern. So it's a kind of a, a research agenda uh, for non-passive agents who are just the pro- their projects in the light of their circumstances. And without allowing for any of that, we cannot explain <coughs> what agents actually do. And we just end up with these banal statements. Uh, most people most of the time do X or sociologists will settle for, for even less than that, a statistically significant proportion of the population will do X, uh, which tells you nothing about who does it or why they do it. In other words, to me, it's not a satisfactory explanation. Thank you.
1: Thank you very much indeed, Margaret, and I'm sure there'll be plenty of questions to follow. Now, we have about 10 to 15 minutes for questions at this point. I say at this point, we may not be able to get all the questions in at this point, but don't, don't forget there'll be a second opportunity. If you look on your programme, there is a second opportunity after lunch. The last session of this seminar is uh, an opportunity for you to put questions to all three of our speakers, as a panel, uh, so if you don't get your question in in this session now, you may have a chance to do so in in that session. Uh, I'm going to take questions in a few moments, but could I just advise you, if you do have a question uh, for Professor Archer, you need to raise your hand to me at some point, and I'll make a note. Don't just wait until the preceding speaker has finished, because what you don't realise is, I've got a list written here of people who are going to jump in before you. You'll never get in at that point. Okay. So who would like to take the first question? Would you please, when you do uh, give you a question, please say who you are and what role you, you, part- you, what role you have. For example, if you're an early career researcher, or doctoral student, we want to know that. You know, that's really interesting to us here. Okay. Um, I'll take the gentleman uh, there first and then this lady second. Thank you.
3: Um, I think what my role has been is visiting professor at the University of Bath. And your name? Ian James. Ian, thank you, yes. Very convincing. I just wanted to ask you what you thought the consequences were, because my, my, understanding, my, my understanding of what you said is that we can only ever understand people at the individual level, because we have to understand uh, how they see various contexts, how they read pressures, we have to understand their projects, and that's fine, but um, I just wonder where that leaves sociology. Which is largely, you know, tends to be a study of aggregates, aggregates and groups. And it tends to use, as you suggested, probabilistic statistics because that's the only sort of statistics would make sense. I just wonder where that left it, any explanation
2: other than uh, aggregation. Ag- other, yeah. <coughs> well, <laughs> you made an assumption which is perfectly valid in uh, in terms of what I've presented this morning. Um, which I'm actually writing a book at the moment called The Relational Subject. Right. And I do believe that there is collective reflexivity. Now, I don't mean the, uh, what John Searle means by that. Um, when, when he talks about two people clearing the yard, he, he gives a little diagram of two faces and he puts, We think inside both heads, we think we're going to clear the yard. Um, I don't think it works that way at all, and I don't think that's a satisfactory way for various philosophical reasons for it, for it not working. Um, what I think does work is, if we think about emergence, um, is that a pad, uh, Linda, or is it a poster?
1: supposed to. Okay,
2: I'll do do it in in words. No, I don't mind. Uh, Time's short. Um, If if you think of a couple, but we could be thinking about a work team, an orchestra, a sports football team, a political party, um, but the couple is just easier Mm -hmm. to to illustrate it with. Um, Let's talk about relational goods. This couple can be getting on really well, it doesn't mean perfection but uh, one of the relational goods that those two have generated and the parallelism is that a football team is not an aggregate of egotistical players <coughs> or can get signed up for some better play, better paying football team it is a collective and you know, a good coach is largely defined by how he, they usually are he's, um, meld these good players into a good team, mm-hmm. which is something really very different from an aggregate. So let's just stick with our couple. They're getting on well, and they've generated trust between one another. Now, that's an emergent property. Uh, now, suppose something goes wrong not something bad but you know we will call them David and Helen which is what we call them in the text Uh, David car car breaks down on the way back from work Um, and he rings Helen to say I'll be late home because of the car and I can't tell you when because of the car Um, now Helen does not immediately because of the reference to this trust so think of it as a triangle two people and the generative mechanism is their love, affection and decency towards one another and the trust they've generated is the apex Helen does not immediately think bastard he's cheating on me Uh, and David isn't sort of half his mind on when's the AA going to turn up and the other half of his mind on what on earth is Helen thinking Um, and that trust and I'm citing this as an important example because I think there's a huge deficit of trust and social solidarity to being very closely linked um, in our late modern societies um, and therefore the collective reflexivity trust, confidence um, caring um, extremely important, but I agree with you entirely. If we were just marooned at the individual level, we'd be condemned to the aggregate, and then we couldn't even explain the outcome of a football match. Thank you. Thank you. you. Uh, Yes, thank you. Anne Lee, um, I work research and work with uh, doctoral supervision. I've been trying to understand concerns and where values might come in Mm -hmm. are they just part of concerns they certainly play a part in them yeah (coughs) but but they can be much more extensive and subjects sorry had you finished let me know yes I think I (laughs) have once upon a time Talcott Parsons put values down there as the bottom line and every institution including the one you're talking about would would have drawn upon the central value common value system um, well that seems to have gone by the board rather but there are some sort of interesting um, things that came up in, in research um, and some of them <laughs> in a sense were quite, quite prophetic for example I was Rather amazed, sitting there as a, you know, 60-year-old uh, middle-class woman, that there would be a young 19-year-old boy telling me about how he realised he was gay. I'm being very, very open uh, about this. I'm not saying you told me all, of course, in the first person, we all edit everything. Um, whereas, for example... Uh, it turned out I had quite a block just happenstance of evangelical Christians and some of those were really rather resistant and I can understand in a sociology department why they would be uh, about saying that their faith played any part in their, their concerns uh, but it certainly would do and it came home one day when I was talking to one young girl and um, And I said, well, what are you going to do do about this situation? She pulled back her sleeve, and she said, this is what I do. Um, I can't remember what the acronym was, but it it just said in big, bold letters, what would Jesus do? And she said that was what she consulted every time she had to make a personal decision from, shall I go out with this trap, to... um, Know, should I get my assessed essay in um, a day, a day early because I've got a date the day afterwards? Ah, uh, but the trouble is about values in general. Um, and I think well, this would make an interesting <coughs> thing to do in, in class sometime. It would just be to take any at random um, Radio Four six o'clock news. <coughs> and listen to the the talk and then ask the group what core values of British society have come through here or what distorted values of British society have come through here because it's one fascinating program that's on this, this is a foreigner speaking you know this is how I keep in touch with England um it's on, on Sunday evenings and it's called The Bottom Line and what's the bottom line about how to make your millions now I just refuse to believe that the whole country in the plenty of surveys that shows in in terms of values this is not the case that all anybody wants is materialism commodification etc people care enough to staff charities for free, um, philanthropic, voluntary activities. They will give organ donations to people they don't know. (coughs) So the bottom line cannot be as simple as money. We go back to the, you know, people are different.
1: Thank you. I've got time for two more questions and I've got two speakers. Sorry, sorry, Pete. can we take yours after lunch, please? Uh, the gentleman in the second row and then Sue.
4: I, uh, I'm Nick Williams and I'm a PhD researcher at the University of Exeter. Um, but about, well, about 15 years ago I, st- I, I studied uh, uh, development sociology and uh, I forgot a lot about it but what I haven't forgotten is that there was always this this, this, this tribal warfare between one group of people who were very much followers of Bourdieu and the other group who were in a way more extreme uh, and, and completely actor-oriented uh, researchers and it's not always clear to me what was really the difference, but to them it was um, mm-hmm. and one of the discussions was always about also what you put there, that are agents active or passive are they in a way Rational exactly. and, and mainly but yeah. are they active all the time? Yeah. Um, do they know what they what they what they want? And I'm struggling a little bit still with with understanding what your approach there is. Uh, I mean, you mentioned that obviously people are not active when they are in a traffic jam, and you alert to that people tend to be active in making decisions that affect themselves, either as a student or in career or anything like that. But I mean, my my feeling would be that that um, it's not very clear what well also that's very different per person. Uh, I think many persons are, are are much more active than others in the decision taking. Sure. How how do you how do you cope with that? I mean I can I can give many examples of myself where I I really just thought, well let's let, let fate decide what will happen. Uh, when friends and, and, and other people uh, were much more active in, in trying to make things work for themselves. Uh, how, <coughs> apart from, of course, taking a very individual approach and trying to find out what their attitude is and, and, and calling being passive maybe also an active way of dealing with things, how, how do you really? Yeah, how do you cope with this passiveness that mm-hmm. is also an action of, of people?
2: Well, before I get on the board yet, may I ask you a question? Yes. when you say let fate decide or you know the turn of the roulette wheel my guess would be they're about things that you don't care about too much no
4: it's about career jobs really yes yeah.
2: Why would you let your career be decided by a roulette wheel
4: not roulette ball but uh, realizing in my case of of course very personal but realizing that I have very broad range of, of interests and mm-hmm. that's um, okay. you can get into different directions, okay. depending
2: on what comes to your part. Okay. Um, well, if you go back to my being human 2000, I would argue you haven't completed the DDD sequence. You're in the middle of it, or getting towards the end of it. Um, discernment, deliberation and dedication. You haven't yet come across anything, or a good reason for anything, that makes you personally say, I want to devote myself to doing that, alongside all sorts of other things, like maybe having kids or whatever, whatever. Um, Would you... um, Well, how how to do this quickly. Basically, his view, which was much more correct, when he advanced it than it is now there's something very paradoxical happening there's been a 40 year time lag <coughs> and Bourdieu has been taken up A. in translation B. thanks to the entrepreneurship of one Loic uh who oh, you know I think he was appointed as literary executive to, to be fair but he's certainly made hay out of his material uh, therefore and I, I've done this not in a rigorous way if you, if you look at the referencing to Bourdieu in English and that means English speaking world to me it's all the later works it's all under vacuum under Now, if you go back to when I was working with him and he was producing, uh, first of all, Les Héritiers, 1964. Secondly, Reproduction, 1966. Thirdly, Distinction, 1972. Don't quote me on that. Um, His argument could go on a postcard. And I I think all Bordier's arguments, for all the prose, can go on a postcard you have positionality that you're born into, your natal social context. Then you have a large chunk of stuff called socialization, and then you have dispositionality. And your position prepares you with the disposition to accept a similar position to that which your parents had. That'll be my postcard from the early Bourdieu. Now the trouble with that, There are many troubles with that, but the the main trouble with that is with this 40-year delay. It's a hell of a time. And we're not talking about, you know, some weird um, minority Aboriginal language. Um, The world's changed. And as I put it in one of the the Trilogy, these are no longer Bourdieu's people because it's no longer Bourdieu's world. What can you do if you are a parent? I mean, in Les Ériciers, he's very, very subtle and tells you some beautiful stories there, uh, you know, very French about how uh, you know, the family draws on its resources to, one uh, well, of the best stories about how, do they res- how does a bourgeois family rescue a thick kid? <laughs> And the answer is, you know, find a niche for him or her. Cordon Bleu, cooking or whatever, whatever. Uh, And and these are very good stories. Um, But the mainstream is, if your kid isn't thick, well, you you move close to a good lycée, and they just go chug-chug through the system, they have your values, out they come, and they reproduce your social position. Well, the trouble is, what? As as seriously, what do parents have to give to kids today? If you send them to a public school, they will come out and they will really be kicked about. And I mean, Radio Four is 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 a very, very good indicator.
1: When you say public school, Margaret, are you using the English sense
2: or the English uh, sense, English sense? Private, independent, highly expensive school. And a lot of the uh, BBC presenters uh, went to one. And they now quite deliberately say, Tuh. I was stood, I was sat. Yes. Uh, yeah.
1: They Myself and my friend my were going.
2: Yes, yeah. Me and my friend were sat. Yeah. Singulars, plurals, mixed yeah. up. I'm not really snobbish about it, but a lot of meaning gets, gets lost in in these things uh, so the private education which used to be the bonus and you still hear old Labour Party people talking about you know, the public school cabinet and so on um, to some who've been sent there at great expense, it's an albatross round their necks now like, okay, you've not got great sympathy for the uh, the well-off Think of what the working class have got to to convey to their kids. Uh, For girls, almost every job they were doing, reception, retail, um, the ordinary jobs that ordinary girls leave school and go into, they need keyboard skills. They've already acquired them. Their mothers are still learning. It's not something they got from their mothers. They teach, my student interviewees, took a lot of their parents how to email, MSN, download, stream, um, even though there's a computer in the house. And for the fathers, in a way, it's even worse. It's not my son follows me into the factory, because I'm afraid the the factory closed down and made me redundant 20 years ago. Since when I've had fiddly jobs, part-time jobs, um, and I certainly don't have the good old working class compensation about monotonous working Well, I've got a grand bunch of mates because you've got a different bunch of mates each job that you move to so on the whole these parents settle for a very passive It's almost turned them into passive agents passive towards their children will support you whatever you choose to do passing the burden over, over to the kid And there is no place for that important year. There's no place for a changing world um, in which actually you get an inversion between what the parents know and what the kids know. In a nutshell, there's a lot more to be said.
1: Thank you. We've got the last uh, question now from uh, Professor Sue Clegg, Leeds Metropolitan University Emerita, Professor Sue Clegg. I have a challenge for you both. If you could present it in less than 30 seconds and if you could respond in less than two minutes, i would <laughs> <laughs> um, Go. <laughs> constraints and enablements and um, cultural and social structures as part of the morphogenic sequence. Um, it seems to me that actually that is one way of non-aggregatively thinking about yes. the, con- the, the structuring conditions under which we find ourselves. Yeah. And my question is, I think, and I think you were beginning to get there in the, in the last question, was... The conditions of reflexivity are also changing, and how you're thinking
2: about that. Yeah. Um, Thirty second answer. Read the reflexive imperative. <laughs> <laughs> well, then I you know was, the It was an, an
1: invitation <laughs> to you to say something about it.
2: Sorry. Thank you for that. <laughs> but yeah, change is is, is increasingly important, and I think. There were some changes coming, you know, like the slump in the Euro, uh, the disaster that uh, political coalitional centrism is producing in policy terms all, all over Europe, um, the speed with which technology is developing, and the, the synergy that's developed between multinational corporations and technological <coughs> means of doing things which are not just um, you know, handy bookkeeping um, mean that we all have to think more and more all of the time about the things that we do and things that went on old assumptions like I will have a pension well, <laughs> uh, I don't think people coming up to that can make that assumption any longer. Um, some of the categories, last word, um, that used to be, you know, precious and inviolate, like pensioners, we must look after them, give them bus passes, and so on. Quite right, too. Um, no, now these are getting chipped away at. We've got a nasty cate- subcategory called rich pensioners. And so, there has to be reflexivity on the part of, of, of young working people, whatever, well, I say whatever, young professionals or semi-professional working people. Um, do I take out a private pension? Uh, because I can't rely on the state. Um, the employer's contribution isn't what it used to be. So all sorts of internal conversations that never used to take place. We took our... USS for granted, didn't we, from the beginning? Uh, and one could go on forever, but I haven't got it forever.
1: Thank you very much. Um, before I, I thank uh, Margaret once again and, and um, leaves out to lunch... I'd just say that I think we can still uh, stay on target in terms of the timing. Let's see if we can aim for just a 30-minute lunch. We'll see how it goes. And we will round you up when we feel that we're, we're ready to come back in here. But we're aiming for half an hour for lunch. And if you do have any more comments, I'm sure Margaret would be happy over lunch to chat with you. And don't forget there will be a second opportunity later this afternoon. Thank you very much indeed, Margaret. Thank you.
2: At
1: about uh, five minutes past. I was just going to say, Miss Juliana, I'm speaking at Juliana, because uh, you were ill. I know, so yes. So